That's funny. It's like <laughs> they're shooting each other. <laughs> Died of a gunshot wound to the chest while hunting a lot. Walter Nelson <clears throat> Wentworth was shot and fatally wounded while hunting eight miles southeast of Superior. He was struck in the head by a shot fired by an unknown person. Oh, my God. <laughs> in the head? A head shot. How do you, mis- <laughs> how do you miscalculate that? Maybe he pissed somebody's wife off or something. Jesus. <laughs> 19-year-old suffered a severe leg wound when dropped his rifle in the woods almost 10 miles east of Phillips and it discharged. Jeez. <laughs> Jesus. to the RNA Outdoors podcast fueled by Ripcord Arrowrest and First Light Hunting Apparel. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that love to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we interview professionals in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. listeners, subscribers, and fellow outdoorsmen and women. This is your host, Lucas Paw, and I'm excited to tell you about some of the sponsors that continue to help make this podcast not only happen, but grow and thrive in this digital world of audio content. This podcast is brought to you by Ripcord Arrowrest, the bow hunter's number one fallaway rest on the market. Ripcord is known for 100% full-time arrow containment and their patented drop-dead brake system that eliminates launcher bounce back. Best of all, Ripcord is backed by their rock-solid guarantee. If the original owner has a part break for any reason, it will be repaired or replaced at no charge. And did I mention, Ripcord is located in southwest Montana, where all their products are made with pride in America. Check them out at ripcordrs.com and on their social media feeds. This podcast is brought to you by First Light Clothing and Hunting Apparel. Born in the Rockies in central Idaho, First Light's mission is to create simple yet proven versatile gear that provides comfort and performance in any situation while working to promote the pursuit of ethical hunting and stewardship. I recently joined the First Light Pro Staff team and have continued to be impressed year after year in their innovations in engineering and merino wool fabrics. Ten years ago, they started putting out wool fabrics with camel patterns, and immediately this changed the game. Since then, they offer multiple layering systems and kits in various proprietary patterns and continue to raise the bar with their competition. Find them online at firstlight.com or under their social media feeds. Go farther, stay longer.
welcome folks to the RNA Outdoors podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Lucas Boss, sitting here uh, in a nice and cool evening here in Paso Robles, California. Um, fortunate to spend the weekend with one of my good friends, actually friend of the podcast, and was featured on podcast numero number two when we talked about fitness for archery and kind of got specific into some of the mental aspects of, of shooting archery and also uh, just some of the shoulder mobility and different types of agility type exercises that help you um, not only for archery hunting, but, you know, for life as well. But anyway, Ron Jones, welcome back to the Arnie Outdoors podcast. It's good to be back in Paso and I, I brought my bow and we're going to do some shooting tomorrow. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we had planned to shoot a 3D course, which is going to be closed, but we're going to shoot the smaller um, five-stage 3D course, and then we'll go shoot some targets and nice. dial the bows in. We may even go uh, try to shoot a pig in the morning, too. So Yeah, well, whatever whatever happens, it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, we don't really have much of an outline tonight, but we've got a lot of things on our mind, a lot of things that we've been wanting to catch up and talk about. Um, it's been kind of a whirlwind year yeah. with just a lot of stuff going on. So we haven't had a chance to, to reconnect. Uh, but, uh, it was good today to go out and kind of back to a place that you and I, oh, I would say eight to 10 years ago had discovered, uh, it's an old, right. basically an old Indian artifact area, mm-hmm. uh, where the Selenian Indians, uh, had lived and, and, you know, basically had their own community out there, you know, in like the 17 and 1800s and um, always kind of been like a spiritual place, just right. kind of an interesting um, energy place where you go and you just kind of, you know, you can almost feel the energy like it was, you know, back then. But you, you can really feel it there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. A lot of animals, you know, good, yeah. good wild area. Just a, a neat like a, just a complete rock outcropping kind of in the middle of, you know, just a, a kind of a foresty area. And it's just fun traversing across the rocks and just walking across the area. You see a lot of the uh, the holes that a lot of the Indians had made years ago and some of the, you know, basically the probably the areas where they bathed themselves and other things you could tell where they, yeah, where they you, basically you lived. You could kind of figure out what they were doing in different spots. Yeah. I think that might have been one of the first... Uh, hike kind of things that we did together yeah. actually probably yeah. was going out there yeah we used to take the smoke wagon out there we <laughs> barge through the the, the river do, the dodge four by four yeah and then we would go and the wildflowers were always, always usually pretty amazing out there too so yeah for those of the that might not be familiar it's it's on the back side of Hearst castle um so it's just a gorgeous area of yeah. central california yeah, it's it's a good area. So, yeah, it was good to go out there and catch up. And, uh, yeah, we're just uh, here this evening, and uh, we've got kind of a bunch of different um, generalized topics to talk about. But I know one of the things that, uh, um, you know, as we were kind of preparing for your trip up here and just kind of things to discuss, one of the things you've been doing is a lot of research. Um, you've been studying and reading a lot of kind of old um, vintage um, clips about not only fitness and exercise, but also um, you've been just kind of sending me photos of different archery clips that are like all of these like old vintage, um, just things from, I mean, back before, I mean, before probably the Indians even hunted and gathered. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, You know, when you 
started RNA and I started thinking more about archery, I started paying attention to that in my research. And I, I researched the history of physical education. And so that's not just back in the 60s, but I'm, I'm back all the way in the Greek and Roman era looking at, you know, the importance of physical education for building a sound mind, a sound body. And, and archery and outdoor education was always part of these old systems, you know, and you can, you can trace the systems all the way through, um, all the way into the 60s. And, and you'll see um, outdoor education was prominent and, and many schools, even domestically here, um, the fifties and sixties had archery programs. They had shooting ranges under the, in the basement, under the cafeteria in the high school I went to and, uh, Bakersfield had a rifle range under the cafeteria. And I just found that out about a year ago, mm. you know, uh, imagine, I didn't know when imagine, I went there, but imagine a, a rifle or a shooting range in a school now in California. Well, and I was talking to my brother who's five <laughs> years younger and he said, yeah, I used to go dove hunting in the morning and I, the shotgun was in the back of the pickup in the, in the rack and it, nobody, you know, everything was cool. So I don't yeah. know what happened, but, but anyway, the, the point I wanted to make is, uh, yes, the, the outdoor you know, I know you've talked about the importance of preservation of, of open space for hunting and fishing, and that's being encroached upon today. And, and I think that's a, a very worthy cause to get behind and raise the flag on. I don't think um, people that don't understand history don't have quite the appreciation for the importance of that education for children today. Whether they're hunting or not, they need to have access to those those kinds of lands because really that's that's so much of what balances people out um, at a spiritual level. I'm not talking about religious, but I'm just talking about that that mental health aspect. Um, we can trace this back, you know, thousands of years, people talking about that. And so when we get into this whole urban way of living and we're always plugged in and we don't get out there, we talked about this driving home today. It's like, man, it just felt good to go out there and walk around and, you know, just, just just listen and see if we could, you know, sight any bucks coming out to drink and, yeah. and just, you know, watching the squirrels. and Yeah, not many places in this area where you can actually go and do that, where you can just drive around and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of be at one with nature and not feel like you're encroaching on someone's private property. I mean, right. it's, it's, you know, tens of thousands of, of public land acres out there that you can just kind of go get lost in, mm -hmm. but... I was I was surprised at how warm it was out there. Oh, it was ninety seven degrees. Yeah, it was hot. We were uh, we were packing a few things up there. We did a couple demos. You did a couple videos, mm -hmm. and we packed some exercise equipment up there, and just had a good time. It was nice to to get out and do that. Uh, like I said, something that you and I have have kind of done in the past. It was something we've enjoyed. But mm -hmm. uh, back on this um, archery topic, um, it's interesting. There's a link that you had sent me that, uh, shows a lot of the, uh, kind of the, the history of archery and a lot of the, uh, different videos. I mean, these date back into the 1920s and thirties, juniors shooting archery, uh, amateur Robin hoods. I mean, kids back in the day that were basically shooting at 40 to 50 yards with traditional bows that were basically, you know, hitting an right. arrow upon an arrow, you know, and doing a Robin Hood where they're basically splitting the arrow. And you think about today's society, I mean, if kids had to use any of their motor functions, you know, they would struggle with that. Whereas, you know, back right. then it was normal, like to your point where, you know, PE was normal and mm -hmm. shooting a bow was normal and doing those things outdoors were normal. And it's scary because that's not the norm anymore. It's almost not socially accepted right. like it was then. But, I, don't, um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last show. I don't think I did. But the 
there was a, there was an area of physical education that I ran upon over the years, especially the last few months, I've really gotten into paying attention on that. It's called manual training. And manual training involves specifically learning how to use one's hands with with agility. Agility means coordinated movement, if you put it on a bumper sticker. And fine motor control, uh, digital dexterity. In, in other words, the, the fine precision of knowing how to use not just your fingers, but also your fingertips and developing a sensitivity there. And so I'm thinking, you know, into the archery, especially watching you shoot, you know, what you do is very precise and it's very relaxed. And we talked about relaxation last time. Uh, and, you know, if you don't train for that, you just can't have that going out on the weekend and expect everything to come together. So if we're talking about getting children involved in, in outdoor sports like hunting and fishing, um, especially a weapon type sport, you know, you definitely want to have <laughs> some fine motor control with, yeah. with what you're doing, whether it's a firearm or, or even a, a bow and arrow. So um, that's a very important area that's off the radar for more, most parents. So I don't know how many uh, people listening to this show will understand this or have heard this before, but a lot of kids today are needing occupational therapy as early as first grade. And the reason for that is they don't know how to use their hands anymore. And it, it comes down to something this simple. Because so many kids now eat fast food, they don't require fine motor control because they're using uh, gross motor control to just shove a burrito in their face or a pizza. It's finger food. Finger meaning I'm not really using much control with my fingers. Mm -hmm. What's the flip side of that? You and I grew up learning how to use a knife, fork, and a spoon. And something as simple as that, we've forgotten the importance of. Because if you think about what it takes to teach a young toddler how to use a knife, fork, and spoon, there's a lot of teaching and learning that goes into that and fine motor control. And so the kids aren't doing that. And they're poking at an iPad or a phone and playing a video game, but they don't have the skill, basically, to hold a pencil and a crayon when they get into uh, kindergarten and first grade, yeah, and so now they're needing therapy, and it, you know, and, and how how can we expect a child like that to go, um, you know, use a weapon precisely and accurately? So this is this is something. It's a it's actually a very very important topic that that hunting can be part of the solution, but I think it's an, an interesting topic to talk about because um, it it presents a bigger problem that people might not be aware of. Yeah. You'd done a lot of um, research, I know, in the past around um, kind of mental skills training. Right. And w one of them that jumps out to me is is mental imagery. And one of the things you talk about, um, you know, more than just visual pictures, feel it with your senses. Mm -hmm. And thinking about not only seeing and feeling, it's, you know, those are skills that, um, you know, clearly everyone can see, everyone can feel. Um but not everyone can visualize necessarily or have that mental imagery. Um, you know, I think Nolan Ryan said it, I see and feel myself throwing exactly the pitches that I want to throw before I ever even begin to warm up at the ballpark. You know, right. it's like when I think about going and before I go shooting or before I go out, you know, hunting, I have kind of that mental imagery of playing mm -hmm. what I think is going to happen when I get to a certain area, you know, and of course it doesn't always happen that way, but, you know, having that thought process you know, kind of tunes you to know, you know, how you should react in that situation. Yeah. Well, let's lay this out a little bit. I'll lay out some basics. Uh, mental skills training was my master's thesis. 
in, uh, in graduate school, and I, I was mentored by Dr. Tommy Lee White, who was America's first Olympic psychologist. So I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time right before he retired, and uh, it was just a great experience. But the, the difference between visualization and mental imagery is pretty significant, and people kind of use the two terms loosely together. But visualization is, is basically just seeing. So I see myself doing, uh, you know, I'm pulling back, I'm drawing my, my uh, arrow back on my bow, and I see the buck, and I'm going to shoot. But the difference between visualization and mental imagery is mental imagery is multi-sensory. So in other words, I'm going to see, but as Nolan Ryan said, I'm also going to feel. So what are the other senses? You have your hearing your taste, your touch, your smell. So that the idea is the more real you make it in your thinking before you get there, the more transfer there is when you get into the actual situation, whether it be a sport competition or, or hunting. So if you want to set yourself up for success before you go hunting, um, think about what are the smells that you're going to experience? What What's the air temperature like? What's the wind uh, speed? Uh, what are the smells? What are the sounds? You know, all that put into your preparation. So when you do get there and you sight the buck or the elk or, you know, whatever it is you want to kill, you have a familiarity with the situation. And that produces more relaxation, which, you know, we'll get into in a minute because, you know, the heart rate can like really spike with anxiety and <laughs> sighting a buck. There's some interesting research in that. Yeah. Funny story. Yeah. Uh... <clears throat> you had sent me some news clippings from a Chicago Tribune back in the uh, late fifties. Yeah, fifty nine, I think yeah, it was. This has been a topic for a while, and uh, <laughs> so I'll just I'll just read a few of these. Five Wisconsin hunters die seeking deer. Three are shot. Two suffer heart attacks. And literally, um, you have folks that are going out there. In this case, as a gentleman, he was sixty five years old after having spotted deer, died of a heart attack while hunting. <laughs> Which you think about, and I can attest to this because, you know, typically when, you know, you spot a game or you spot an animal that, you know, was a legal animal or something right. that you, you want to go, you know, try to put a stock and harvest, um, your heart rate does increase oh, yeah. significantly. And then when you get under the bow and, you know, of course you draw back and you've got that animal, you know, looking at your broadside, right. um, that's one of the tough things to fight off is, is some of the panic of that, um, you know, basically your heart rate trying to, you know, jump out of your chest. Right. But, right. <laughs> well, yeah, they said, um, and there's some interesting research in this. One of the studies that cited a lot was done, I think in 2007 in Michigan. And I heard, um, the PhD presented at the American College of Sports Medicine Summit that I go to every year. He he talked about the study, and then and that's when I I think I actually texted you from the presentation. I said, yeah. "Hey man, we got to look into this." But uh, th with some of the the hunters, they they were at like stroke level with their blood pressure <laughs> and heart rate, like it ready just to drop right there before they ever dropped the game. So um, you know what you've done with RNA on the preparation part and. And, you know, getting people to think about the overall health and wellness and the fitness preparation, I think, is a really responsible thing to do because, you know, we want people to go out and hunt and fish and enjoy themselves and come home to their families and, yeah. and not have a tragedy, you know. Well, and I've always said the day, the day you go out and you don't have that rush or you don't have that feeling of, right. um, you know, like your adrenaline's dumping and you're, right. you're just, you know, 
having basically a heart attack and yourself, you probably don't need to be hunting anymore. Cause well, it is normal. It is normal. Uh, you know, just if you're looking at, you know, sport and exercise psychology or performance psychology, you know, we'll just wrap it into that. And it, that is a normal response. You're going to get that. Uh, it's called a, you know, psychic energy or arousal spike. Um, but knowing how to manage that knowing how to, you know, bring in your, your breathing techniques and your, there's a thing called a body scan. I used to do it when I coached cross country and, teach my kids how to do this where you scan yourself starting from the top of the head and you just kind of use this imagery of, of, uh, you know, as you come down your body, just all the tension releasing and kind of just oozing off your fingertips and then into your feet and right into the ground. And just the better you get with that, the more you can, you know, be very specific about what areas you're tracking down and just letting all that go. And mm-hmm. uh, there's different techniques, you know, on how to think about that, but it's the body scan is the term. And so things like that, you can do extremely quick after you've practiced a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, maybe when you see the, the game that you're going to draw on, you do a quick body scan you do your breast cycle and then you're, you're drawing back. And yeah. And you and I have kind of talked through that progression. I know in our, and I think when you were here, you know, a year or two ago when we went shooting and we kind of went through a few, right. you know, progressions of, you know, kind of going through that pre-shot routine, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's much easier when you're looking at a foam target versus, you know, right. a live animal. But still, the the more that you prepare, the more that you practice, the more that you use that pre-shot routine, the more it becomes to memory to where um, you shouldn't necessarily have to think about it. Right. Uh, it should just, you know, become somewhat automatic. But at the same time, you don't want it to be too automatic um, because, you know, at some point you could miss a step or, right. you know, you could have a, a, a lapse and, you know, your breathing could be off or, mm-hmm. you know, you're not setting your, your bubble in the right location on your site. And, uh, you know, so I've always kind of thought, yeah, it's good to practice. It's good to build routine. Uh, but you also don't want it to be too routine to where you may forget a step, which could be very critical mm-hmm. uh, when you're, you know, staring down an animal or trying to, right. you know, put an arrow in an animal. Yeah, it's like you're, I think at the higher level, you're mindful of it, but you're also focused on the, the target as well. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, so kind of back on this um, discussion around, you know, getting kids, you know, more, um I guess, involved in the outdoors and, you know, whether that's archery or whether that's hiking, um, you know, it's, it is, you know, clearly, you know, a a nation concern right now that, you know, obesity rates are high. And I know you've shared some of that data uh, with children and, um, you know, the, the thought of a child, you know, having to actually show their work doing a math equation versus using a calculator. I mean, kids use calculators and electronics. Yeah so fluently and proficiently now that, you know, the way we used to have to do things, I say we, because I, I think of, you know, us as somewhat being old school and how we were taught and trained in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, kids are not getting the same, um, you know, education, the same teaching and, and the same really, um, you know, teacher, you know, span of control teacher, you know, to student ratio. They're not getting a lot of that, um, you know, one-on-one time with teaching and, you know, PE is now becoming a second thing, you know, and in a lot of schools where kids are not have the ability to go out and, 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 you know, do physical education. Um, and it's really setting the nation up, I think for, 
for a bad thing in the future. Yeah, we've we've stopped teaching kids how to use their bodies, so that's that's the dangerous part, you know. Um, whether you're hunting or just walking down the street, you know, you you need to know how to control yourself. Um, I, the pendulum swings one way and then back the other, and I'm hoping we're starting to swing back to a realization that we do need uh, quality PE. And I'm not talking about just throw the ball out. I'm talking about real teaching, you know, professional physical educators that are really working with the kids hard to teach them proper technique and, and, you know, the motor development and the fine motor control and, you know, the neurological part of this too, um, getting them to have the nervous system to control all that. It's extremely important, but um, the, the manual training, I just want to really emphasize that to everyone that, that the more you can do with your kids to teach them how to use their hands with control, the better it is for their brains. Um, there's a lot of nerve connections that go from the fingertips and the fingers uh, back to the brain. So it's very stimulating for the brain to do things. I mean, even a small child um, manipulating Play-Doh, just sticking their hands in the Play-Doh and squishing it around and that... That kind of stuff is great, playing with blocks and things like that. But, you know, you think about all the things we grew up doing that involved, like I had knives when I was young, and we learned how to sharpen the knives. And when I didn't have good control, I would cut myself, you know. Yeah. And you figure out, you know, okay, that's something I don't want to repeat, you know, and you get better at it. But if you don't ever give the kids the opportunity to learn, then they grow up and, and next thing you know, they can't hold a pencil. And speaking of pencil, you know, because I'm trained to look at movement and movement quality and the efficiency of movement, just seeing how most people hold a pen or a pencil tells me they don't have any proper training. Because back in the day, we were taught how to hold the pencil properly so it was very, very efficient. And, and so many people are very inefficient in how they grip. And you might laugh at that, but it's, you know, it really does add up. It's, it's, uh, it's a physical literacy thing, whether you're holding a pencil or shooting or trying to sharpen a knife. And um, once you're trained to see that, and I hope people walk away from the show after listening and they start making some observations, and I, I bet you'll get some feedback like, wow, I'm really seeing this now that I know what to look for. Uh, watch what kids do and how they move. How do they use their hands? Do they clunk around or can they, do they have some finesse, mm-hmm. you know, and how, and how they use their hands. Their hands are extremely important and very important for the brain too. One of the things you had documented was around youth sports and your philosophy around, you know, there are two basic sport models. One is for children and the other is for adults. Kids are not pros. Youth sports should be developmental while adult professional sports are for entertainment, making money, you know, which are facilitated by winning. But to think about, you know, teaching kids at that age, really the development skills, not only of the sport, but also the dynamic of working in a team and and really understanding the side benefits to the sporting activities. You know, it seems like, you know, it's, it's about participation now. It's not about winning. It's not about losing. It's, it's about, well, you know, good job. Thanks for participating. Here's a, you know, here's a trophy for that. You know, whereas back in the day, if, you know, you didn't take first or second place, you didn't get a trophy, like, you know, tough luck, but kids, you know, are empowered and enabled now to, you know, to, to have those types of things. Whereas it wasn't that way years ago. Yeah. It's, you know, I have to laugh, but I don't know if I should cry because when you study the history of PE and how important physical development is to develop the brain and to develop good citizens. And then you look around, you're seeing what's happened today. It's really frightening. 
and it's very, very sad. So, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a thing about earning it, um, and we've definitely went way too far one way with just giving things away without people earning it. But on the on the the models of sport, this comes from a lot of hardcore research and we're reading hundreds of journal articles. But basically, there's a developmental model and then there's a professional model. And what we've tried to do with youth sports, the team sports year round, is make them more like pros. And um, there's a, just a ton of overuse injuries with kids today, you know, elbows and knees and backs and torn lab- hip labrum is like a really hot injury right now because the hip is displaced because people aren't training it properly and they're out of balance. So I don't care what sport you're doing. If you only do one sport, you're going to get imbalanced. That's why PE was such an important part of this because they taught all this restorative stuff. And I'm now I'm talking about like pre-1920, um, the restorative arts era, um, content area PE was very, very important. And that's my specialty, as you know, Luke. I mean, the things that I do are extremely restorative. They can also make you very fit and, and strong, but there's a restorative component to that, and we really need that today. We've talked about that with, with the shoulders, with archery. But in general, I mean, you walk into any office or place of business, and people are going to have back pain and shoulder pain because we're not training right anymore. We're not... We didn't grow up doing the proper things in physical education. And even even when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, that, that stuff was long gone. You know, I'm talking about, you know, there was a good resurgence in World War II. Because if you, if you look at a timeline, the spikes in fitness, unfortunately, occurred during military conflict. So it'd be nice if we could figure it out in times of peace. But it doesn't. <laughs> history says it doesn't work yeah. that way. So in World War II, we brought back the good stuff from World War I. And the World War One generation, physical education was gymnastics-based, and that wasn't gymnastics like we look at gymnastics today, getting ready for Olympic co- competition. It was medical and orthopedic gymnastics because pre-1920, our PE system was based on that, and many of the top physical educators at the time were medical physicians. That's how close medicine was tied to movement. And so, boy, that's radically changed. You know, sure. you find a doctor today that's even relatively fit, and that's probably the exception, you know. Yeah. But back in the day, they were teaching the actual PE classes, and, and they really knew what they were doing. And so, um, with the restorative component gone, what we ended up doing is adopting a sport model post-1920. And that's when we got really, really out of balance. And then in World War II, we realized that wasn't going to work for combat. Because really, you know, military fitness is survival-type fitness. It's, it's not a sport. I mean, you have to be able to move with agility and quickness, and, and you can't be imbalanced, and we can't take on extra casualties. I mean, it's, it's serious. It's life or death. So they brought back the old stuff, and then that uh, helped us win the war. And then it faded away again. And there was a little spike with JFK, because if you remember back, you know, JFK was a was really an advocate of fitness. Mm-hmm. And um, the Cuban middle, Missile Crisis was brewing, so there was a concern we were going back to war. And so it was a big spike in PE coming out of the late 50s, early 60s. And basically, classical PE as we know it died with JFK, uh, because after that, there was no, there was no leadership at the highest level to push on that. And mm-hmm. then he, he was advocating for that. And, and that ties into my film project. Our, our film comes out on Tuesday. Okay. And that's your La Sierra, which kind of was in the Yeah, it's called the motivation. 60s. It's called the motivation factor. And it, it all started off with uh, my research in classical physical education. And there was a, uh, a coach up in uh, Carmichael, California, named Coach Stan Laprada. And he, 
he created a program at uh, La Sierra High School in Carmichael outside of Sacramento. And that basically was the last great PE program in America. And it was JFK's poster child. He advocated that all the schools should follow uh, La Prati and La Sierra. And about 4,000 schools ended up following that program. So it had quite a following. And um, La Prati went on to be one of the top physical educators in the country in the 60s. And anyway, out of that came a documentary film that will finally be released uh, on this coming Tuesday called The Motivation Factor. <clears throat> and when we got into the film, we realized it wasn't really about uh, Coach LaProdi and La Sierra as much as it was about classical PE in general and what that means to building a good citizen and strong nation. And so we had to go all the way back to the Greeks and trace it into the Romans and and back into the 1800s. So I'm the, I'm the physical education historian for the film. And uh, it's been about a four-year project, and I'm really proud of it. And I... I think the the hunting and fishing crowd would would appreciate the film um, because there's just a lot of really good valuable information there that's going to be good for a country. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and is it specifically was it youth PE? So it was I mean kids less than eighteen in high school or in grade school that were doing all of these various activities that we've just lost today. Yeah, I mean it, you know they started. Um, with this classical PE model, they started with kindergarten first graders, and it was a big part of the YMCA. Um, the classical era PE occurred from about 1885 to 1920, and it wasn't exactly then, but that that's about what happened. And what and PE, the PE profession itself, was born out of a concern for urbanization because as people moved out of the rural areas into the cities to work in factories, there was this great concern about people getting sedentary and overweight and out of shape. And so <laughs> some things don't change, right? Yeah. Um, and so because of that, they created physical education. That became a really important part of our, our whole education system. In fact, at one point, they were considering making PE a third of the education system overall. If that sounds extreme or too high, consider that ancient Greece, at one point, about 50% of their education system was physical. And we're still trying to catch up with Greece in terms of, you know, the balance of mind and body and and making good citizens that are intellectually, you know, uh, on top of it and physically uh, fit and moving well and, and graceful and all that. So PE is really important. It, but unfortunately, the PE today has a very negative connotation. And, and it's like if, if, if all we're going to do is throw the ball out, yeah, it's a complete waste of time and money. Mm-hmm. But what we need is the good stuff. And the good stuff always included for the most part, an outdoor component. And in that outdoor component, you found the camping and the hiking and the orienteering and the um, the archery and the shooting. And it was there, the manual training. And they did a lot of stuff with the hands, you know, and a lot of stuff outdoors. And uh, very few kids have that experience today, and we've talked about this before. Yeah. Well, to some of your data, you know, one in... Every 12,000 high school athletes actually make the pros, and only 5% of those who sign a pro baseball contract ever play even one day, you know, in the major league. So, you know, obviously with those odds, you know, youth sports in general is not really geared towards making the pro- professional athletes. It's, it's you know, an attempt to try to teach kids, um, like I said, the the not only the the fundamentals of the game, but to me, there's such a camaraderie in sports, you know, thinking beyond, you know, being that less than 1% that actually makes it. But 
um, just the life, you know, the, the different life attributes that sports give you, um, you know, you've got you know, kids right now that are, you know, playing basketball, running cross country, making friends, but you know, there's a coach in every one of those teams and mm-hmm. that coach should be instilling, you know, life values through that sport. It's supposed versus, to be about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, um, sports were part of classical PE, but it wasn't the highlight of PE because in those days they understood that if you only did a sport, you'd become very imbalanced. And so, um, we've, we've always had sports in our PE programs in America and other systems too, out of, out of America, but it wasn't sport based. And today that's what a lot of it is. It's, it's, you're going to play this sport and, you know, or it's very game based, but very, very little instruction. So we've got a long ways to go, but the roadmap is in the history books and they're very, very clear. And what I like to see is things that circle back over and over and over. That's what I've been looking for the last 20 years, and especially last four years of doing the film when I've gotten so deep into the research and things that people forgot about decades ago. Mm-hmm. And what I see coming back over and over and over is an emphasis on manual training, a lot of work with the hands. I see a big component on the outdoor uh, education value and a huge uh, gymnastics emphasis but remember, it was medical orthopedic, big use of gravity. So they did a lot of off-the-ground training uh, with ropes and all kinds of different ladders and, and Swedish stall bars and just a ton of off-the-ground work because gravity molds your body like clay. And so if you think about how deformed a lot of kids are today posturally, they're all bent over and they have a kyphotic spine, which is, means their upper back is very rounded forward, their head's way too far forward in front of their shoulders. It causes breathing problems. It causes fall issues because now your whole center of gravity is off. And it's going to cause a ton of pain and need for physical therapy and, and surgical mental, uh, medical interventions that used to be fixed with PE. <laughs> I mean, I've got all kinds of uh, you know vintage uh, uh, physical education textbooks talking about how they fixed people with... Um, medical orthopedic gymnastics that were deformed. They fixed them mm-hmm. over the course of one or two years because they knew how to use gravity. So, um, you know, just from a, a hunting standpoint, having worked with some hunters and people that are, you know, they're in that forward position a lot, especially if you're a shooter, you know, you do kind of protract your shoulders around them forward and get into that kind of crouch position. But, um, if you think of hunting as a sport, if that's all you do, you're going to get very imbalanced. So here comes the, the benefit of the restorative methods from historical PE programs. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot there for hunters or just the office worker or the, the mom that stays at home with their kids. I mean, it, this is, it's, so, it's such a wonderful area. Um, and people ask, well, why aren't we doing it? It's like, that's a really good question. We should be. Yeah. I have been. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with people all different ages and kids. And so I'm happy to share this with the hunting community because I know it has such value, not just for hunting, but just for the overall family well-being, you know. Yeah, I remember being a kid in grade school and having to do, you know, the testing and the challenges. We had to do Presence Fitness Council, yeah. We had to do sit-ups. We right. had to do... You know, push-ups. I remember watching girls be able to do, you know, two to three pull-ups, yeah. you know, in third and fourth grade yeah. and um, sit and reach and all those different, you know, things that we were we were all tested on. But 
the, the schools still do that type of program, or do they do that now? I'll tell you, well, I'll give you a little uh, teaser in the film. You watch the film next week, you'll be blown away by what some um, middle school kids today in America are doing that are still using the old ways. We found a uh, school in California, middle school, that never stopped doing the La Sierra program. The original PE coach learned it in the 60s, and it was like they're in some kind of time capsule. Nobody ever told them to stop, so they kept doing it. And guess what? The kids are amazing, and it's literally the only school still using these methods in the country. They never stopped, and the little girls are doing it, and you'll be blown away by what these girls are doing. We're talking about double rope climbs, you know, up off the deck you know, way up the deck, doing multiple pull-ups, little girls in, you know, seventh and eighth grade just ripping it. And so it's not that the kids can't do it or the girls can't do it. We're just not teaching them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the really sad, as an adult, that makes me ashamed. I'm I'm ashamed that we haven't done a better job with that. It's just just not good enough. We need to change it. Yeah. And you think about, I mean, what does all this mean? And terms of the outdoor industry i mean when you look at trying to get our youth and our juniors more involved in you know outdoor activities um you know a lot of what you have to do in the backcountry requires you to be able to traverse in certain areas that where you're side hilling um you know you're having to pull yourself up like today we were having to climb on rocks and pull ourselves up with well, weight we did on a, our we back did a, and, we did a crab walk down a slippery rock i thought yeah. well this is a great application of the crab walk yeah you know, because exactly the crab you know the crab walk was something they did in classical pe they would do crab races across the gym floor and but there you go. I mean, if, if you don't want to walk down the hill, because, you know, if you're in the backcountry, the last thing you want is a broken bone, right? So you want to lower your center of gravity, and, and then you've got, you know, two hands and two feet and so that you have double the traction. And it's a good skill. But if your shoulders are impinged and you can't reach around behind your butt, you, how are you going to crab walk? Mm-hmm. I mean, so we come back to the, you know the basic fundamental movement stuff that's so important that we just, you know, in terms of the outdoor industry, I know you have some great sponsors and you're really uh, tied in with them. This is something serious to think about. If, if you don't have kids that have a kinesthetic awareness and a comfortable, they're comfortable with their bodies and motion and movement, forget about the outdoor industry. It's not going to be one because they're not going to be capable of going outside and doing anything in the wilderness. Yeah. You know, you're going to have an outdoor industry based around a video game. So we've got, we've got to, teach these kids how to get out and move and it starts with how to stand up how to sit how to walk and and then how to walk in a trail where there's you know there's balance issues and you know hey that's slippery oh there's a log hey the log isn't fixed it's moving and all those things are extremely important for the nerves and the feet and the the balance capabilities of the body Mm -hmm. you know yeah so i mean when you think about society today and um you know there's a lot of hunters and gatherers out there today that go out and provide for their families. But, you know, if, if the grocery stores all close tomorrow mm-hmm. and we had to rely upon people that could go out and, you know, physically, you know, harvest an animal and provide for their family, 
there would be a lot of people in this state that would be looking for their friends, <laughs> especially California, <laughs> especially the vegans that would probably turn into game eaters and all their friends because they wouldn't know even where to start. And that, that's scary because, you know, years ago, it used to be pretty normal that families, um, you know, traditionally would take their families out, you know, on holidays, they would go bird hunting. Mm-hmm. They would do a lot of those activities together outside. And you don't see that activity with families anymore doing that. And, you know, it's kind of scary when you think about where we came from years ago and where we're at now. Well, in a tribal community, if you really look at that, everybody has a job. So everybody has to contribute. And if you can't contribute, you're out of the circle and you're out in the wilderness and then your food, right? So, um, you know, in the zombie apocalypse, you know, I could be the pseudo medicine man because I, I know how to, you know, get people to feel better and, you know, heal up some movement issues, you know, and I can do a little hunting and fishing, you know, and things like that. But everybody has to have something they can do and contribute. So, man, you look around today, it's like if the power grid went out, what can people do? I mean, if you don't have some kind of electronic device in your hand, what, what are you good for? What can you do? You'd better know how to use your hands and feet. And so you, you have a whole generation, if not more than a generation of people that they don't know how to use their hands and feet. They can mm-hmm. sit and poke a gadget, but, you know, that's, that's it. And, and I'm, I, now let's talk about the, the, the devastating part of the brain. And it's just not good for your brain to miss all that sensory input. Now, one of the interesting things about going outside, they've done some studies on mood enhancement. Like, in other words, we're going to get in this treadmill. It's going to be level. We're going to do uh, X percentage of heart rate. And we're going to do a mood uh, questionnaire. And then we're going to do the same, you know, 0% grade, same exact heart rate outside, and we're going to do a mood survey. And what they found is when people exercise outside, the same intensity, they feel better. And so there's this whole mental health aspect to going outside, being a natural sunlight. And also there's a lot more brain stimulation. So you're, you're seeing and hearing things that you don't hear inside that are much more stimulating to your brain. Your brain craves stimulation. And that's how you live. You know, you, you don't want a jello brain. Your, your brain just craves that challenge and stimulation. And so when you're out in the wilderness and you're, you're having to pick your way through and you're having to have fine motor control with a weapon, um, you know, or, or even the, the, you know, the finesse you need to fly fish or whatever, you know, uh, tie a fly, uh, all those things are important. By the way, not many people, you know, I remember when I was a kid tying flies, I didn't tie them very well, but I, I was into it because my dad got into fly fishing a bit. And I would I would try to do it. So all those things are so valuable, man. We stopped doing so many good things, you know. Yeah. You just can't tie a fly in your phone. You no. <laughs> there's so much. There's a lot of lost arts that, you know, years ago that you know you either learned as a craft or a trade, you know, from your family or tying flies is one of them. I've never you know been a fly tire, but I know a lot of people that that have done that in the past, but it's interesting when you meet some of these guys that are professional fly tires, um, they're much older and they've been doing it most of their life, but you don't see a lot of that traditional, there's, there's a huge gap, you Mm -hmm. know, in the generation, uh, in just something like that where, you know, it's too much, it's too easy just to go to the store and buy, you know, a dozen of them for eight bucks versus sit down and actually do it yourself, which is very finite work. Yeah, you you know things always change. I mean, being a historian and and studying you know 
couple thousand years of history, I can see that, you know, PE has always evolved and changed with the times, but the good things always keep coming back. So I want to caution people. Don't want to be careful about throwing away all the good stuff. You know, there's some things that need to cycle back and, and history does repeat. And, uh, I'm going to predict, based on history, that you're going to see a resurgence with with motor training of the hands because this is a growing uh, problem with our kids in schools. And I've had other teachers around the country uh, and special ed teachers and occupational therapy type people talk to me about this. And most, most adults, when I mention this, they've never heard about it before. But this is critical to the outdoor industry if you're trying to, you know, sell knives and guns and bow and arrows and things that involve a lot of fine motor control. If you don't have people that are, they're not comfortable doing things with their hands, how are you going to sell those products? And how are you, how are you going to do those activities? And, and we know from a brain standpoint that those can be very stimulating for the brain and you can learn a lot being in those environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, let's let's do what we can to get that message out, and and hopefully we'll get some kids involved. And and is is this motor issue just a product of kids not being exposed to these activities to where they're having to use, you know, mind and hand together? And you know, like I say, I, we could use just traditional archery shooting as an example. You've got a stick and a string and an arrow, and yeah. it's it's simplest form. There's there's not sights. There's not all this other bells and whistles. It's a it's a very simple um, kind of you know process, if you will, mm-hmm. of shooting like a traditional bow. But is is the is the issue that kids are just not doing that now, and they don't have um, that connection, Connie? You know, the body and the mind connection well, where I think a lot of PE is gone, and the PE that is there is very gross motor oriented. They're they're very few teachers in the profession of PE that understand the importance of fine motor control and motor development. I just don't think they're being taught properly anymore. So I think the the kids aren't getting the opportunity, even when they're in PE, to do fine motor control with the hands or the feet. Um, But I, I think the kids are capable, but they're just... We don't understand how important it is because we lost sight on history. History is a compass, it guides us so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And until we get our heads in the history books and start looking around and listening to the things that were done generation after generation after generation, you know, maybe they knew a few things that we don't. And that's what I found. I mean, even with a master's degree and three college degrees and, you know, I, all this stuff that I've done, I still consider myself quite the beginner because I'm very humbled by the sophistication of what I'm reading. And at times, I really struggle to understand what they were saying 100 years ago because it's so advanced. Um, and then I look around at what people are doing today trying to reinvent the wheel, and I just laugh. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We, you know, in a, in a bumper sticker summary, we need to start teaching kids how to use their hands and their feet. And um, that's going to be more than just kind of running around playing a game without any sort of direction or just walking around the track. I mean, we need the kids to use their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just, you know, a baseball and a bat, but, you know, what's the fine motor control? I mean, uh, we took art away, too. Well, there's a lot of different tools in art classes. You know, I used a scalpel. I mean, not, not scalpel, but, you know, the we did the the the, uh, the thick paint, you know, where you'd press it on with that little spoon thing. And um, we did pen and ink with the quill and... We did acrylics and, you know, we worked with clay and all this stuff. We, you know, so much of that is gone today. 
Um, we dance was also a big part of PE, and I hated it at the time. But there was a lot of uh, fine motor control with how to grab your partner's hands and how, what to do with your feet. And you know, we laugh at that stuff, but it, it's gone now. And you know, we're pretty clumsy. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe they knew something, right? Yeah. <laughs> part of what you've been doing is you know you you talk about you know being an historian and a lot of these vintage um, books and articles that you've been reading, where where do you find literature? Where do you find <laughs> documentaries like this? Where, I mean, you're, you're sending me stuff that is almost like, you know, ink and quill quality. I mean, it's <laughs> somebody, like somebody commented, Declaration of Independence era. Yeah, somebody commented. Uh, they shared one of my posts the other day on Facebook, and they said, it was another excavation by Ron Jones. And I had to laugh because I go, you know, that's really what it is. I'm like, I'm digging this stuff out. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I've been doing this about 20 years, and I finally got a mentor a few years back. Um, and he was really able to guide me about not only here's what you really need to start paying attention to, but here's where you need to go to find the material. And, and fortunately, now a lot of this stuff is in PDF. So you can go to Google Books. But again, people don't know what to look for. I actually know what to look for. I know who the names were, or at least some of them. And I know when I'm reading something, if I spot something, and I, I can just tell, like, the way they describe this book of this person, it's really important. I need to search that person. And so there's a lot of little rabbit holes along the way. But there's a lot of PDF books now on, on Google Books mm-hmm. that you can get for free. And so that's been really helpful for the the PE historians like myself because we can access things so much faster now than we could, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. And, but I have a lot of the original books, as you know, that are over 100 years old. And there's something about just the raw original book. It has a different smell to it. And, and sometimes there's people that have written in it over the years and maybe two or three different people have owned this book and they've jotted their notes in it. And so that it, there's kind of a legacy thing to that. And it's almost look at it as a kind of a responsibility because I'm all thinking now, like, where are my books going to go when I'm gone? Sure. Because I, I don't want them to go in trash pile. This is this is this is the stuff that built our country and it's really important. And uh, but, yeah, Google Books is a, for a quick search. That's a. That's a good place. And then I sent you British Path, Pathé, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, it's a site in, in the UK that has all kinds of vintage clips. And yet they do charge for them quite a bit, unfortunately. But um, you can view them for free. And so I sent you the Archery's uh, keyword search, which was like dozens and dozens of vintage film clips from the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s of, of basically high school, college archery, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. And the, the ladies were quite involved in this. It wasn't all male-dominated. I mean, the women were really into it. Um, the women had kind of a softer version of PE in a lot of these different systems, so they were quite into archery and some more of the rhythmic things where the men were more, they were a little more into the ballistic calisthenics and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, but, yeah, it, it's fun. It's fun to dig around, but... Um, you have to kind of know what to look for. And then when you start reading that, what I go off of is, well, who did they learn from? That's one of the things this particular mentor taught me. He goes, always look for who taught the person you're looking at. And that's been a golden uh, advice for me because I can start looking at their references and then their references. And he goes, eventually you'll get back to Greece. That's how it works. And, I, and I, what's the significance with Greece? 
well, they had figured out that you, you can't have a sound mind without a sound body. You have to... You have to develop your brain through your body in motion. And it's not just getting your heart rate up. I mean, that helps, but it's the control of your movement. It's the grace of your movement. It's the aesthetic quality of your movement. So now we're into precision. And so whether we're hunting, I mean, if I watch you shoot, you have all those components. You have it worked out, not just to a science, because you're an engineer person, so... You know, you're down on the science part, but you have it worked into an art. And when you're talking about movement, you can't talk about movement in terms of only science and mechanics or biomechanics. You must include the art part. It's, and that's something that's really lost in PE and movement and fitness today. We're not, we're not moving um, like art in motion. It's very staccato, rigid, you know, and a lot of fitness is geared towards that or just doing more and harder. But what's the quality of your movement? And so if you go back to the original hunters like the Native Americans, they didn't stomp through the forest. That's not my vision and the reading I've done about them. They moved in a stealth way, and it was finesse, and and, and it was uh, precise. Mm-hmm. And they didn't waste any energy. They only used the energy they needed at the exact moment. And so that's that economy of movement, right? You don't want to do anything extra that you don't have to do, especially if you're hunting at eight or 10,000 feet and you're back, you know, in the country for five to eight, 10 days. You don't want to be wasting energy. You've got no. to pack out, as you know, you're telling me today, because I was asking Luke questions like, how much, you know, do you need to pack out in your bag? I mean, it'd be 140 pounds plus. So you don't want to be wasting any energy, right? So, yeah. But if you don't know the, if you don't have that kinesthetic, physical literacy literacy in your body, the, the economy of movement, you're wasting energy every step. And a lot of people waste energy every step they take. They don't even know how to walk right. All this used to be taught in classical PE. People laugh at me for that today, but there was a huge emphasis on how to stand, how to sit, how to walk, and how to move properly. So you could do anything you wanted to do without a, a catastrophic consequence. <laughs> yeah. You know. And that's something I know you and I have talked about is, is, is there's always a new, you know, buzz something on the market. There's always mm-hmm. a new try this. It's going to, you know, make you lose weight and faster. But it seems like you've always been deep rooted in, you know, kind of, you know, when you talk about, you know, who was their mentor and their mentor previous, mm-hmm. this takes us back, you know, hundreds of years where, a lot of what you do, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's taking what we did years ago and tweaking it to fit, you know, people's molds. But what is it going to take to get us back to a level where, you know, we take a step back and look at what worked years ago and look at what La Sierra did and look at these kids and how fit they were. I mean, is that even possible to bring that back today and do something like that? Or are we too far gone? Um, that's a really intelligent question. It's a little frightening. So I'll, I'll just tell you the truth. But, but speaking from history, history says, unfortunately, it will take a war. And I hate to say that, but that's what history says. So what we're trying to do with the film is not wait that long. We're trying to get the word out with the film because there's never been a film like this. We've looked everywhere. No, no one's ever done a film like this that has taken all this information and, and basically said that the value of movement and teaching children movement is, is, and the history of that is here. It's in a 90-minute film. So um, if we can get that on the radar screen now and start 
understanding history and the value of it. Um, hopefully, we won't wait until it's too late. Um, but w I think, you know, in terms of our country and what's going on right now, uh, and this is going to sound bizarre until you see the film and then you'll get it, but a lot of these problems can be solved with really quality PE. And I'm going to cite ancient Greece as an example. You can't think well if you're not moving well. This is a big idea out of history. And if you look around at our kids, we're not teaching them how to move hardly at all. And when they do move, they don't move well. How can they think? Well, it's not going to happen. And that's not, you look around. Do you think people are thinking clearly today? I mean, really? Watch the news. Go to the mall. It's crazy. You know? <laughs> so yeah, It's not very primal at the mall. We talk in the film, we talk about mental stability. And that, that's not something we pulled out our rear end and just came up with. It's actually in the history books. They talked about mental stability through physical education mental stability yeah it produced muscles and you know you know strength and power and all that stuff but they talked about there was a huge component in classical pe on the mental health side mental stability this goes all the way back to ancient greece and if you don't have a strong physically fit country you won't have the mental stability and that's what's happened to us we're, we're losing it mentally and so if you want the answer to the question if we want to come out of this, we've got to get more physical, but we've also got to be smart about it. And, you know, archery and, and hunting can be part of that solution because you don't want stupid people out there doing stupid things with weapons. You, sure. know? you want them thinking about what they're doing and using precision and having an economy of movement. You know, it teaches a, teaches a person a lot to pick up a weapon and have that kind of responsibility. I mean, I think back when... My father was teaching me how to shoot a shotgun, and he talked to me about the responsibility of that. It made me grow up, you know? I mean, it was like a heavy thing. Like, I could, like, hurt somebody if I didn't. You know, I, had, I can't make a mistake. I, and there was a training involved with that. And he was mentored me. And then I was hunting with his, my relatives and his, his buddies. And they were, it was like a tribal thing of everybody mentoring the, the young hunter or the young fisherman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was learning how to develop my brain through those physical movements. You know, people don't always associate. I mean, you think of a, a weapon, you always think of a firearm. But, I mean, you know, archery equipment is a weapon. I mean, sure. in, in its simplest form, um, it can be very precise, can be very proficient. Um, you know, but it, it's interesting when, you know, when folks think about you know, when the first time that they shot a firearm, and you're exactly right, um, it was a big deal to put a gun in your hands and mm -hmm. go out and shoot a rifle or shoot a, you know, a handgun or if it was a twenty two or whatever right. it was. Um, because, you know, now doing that, it, it's so different, you know, because you used to be able to just go and throw, you know, a couple shotguns in the back of the truck and go, go out, out the back and, door, you know. Yeah, and go shooting. But you know, kids don't even have that option anymore. A lot of times, unless they grow up on a farm or a ranch where they have property to do that. So mm -hmm. even just the ability to go and do some of those things that, you know, I guess we would say maybe we took for granted, you know, our limited resources now where you have to go to a, you know, designed area that's got, you know, range safety officers, right. which is good. I mean, yeah. and that's a good thing, um, but it doesn't give, you know, that child that ability to just, you know, walk out and, you know, there's a rabbit out there or there's a, you know, a coyote or something. Give right. them that ability to just go out and, you know, try to learn it for themselves. Yeah, especially in California. Yeah, well, here, yeah. It's, 
that's not even a question. Got to hide her guns just to keep them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a good discussion, Ron. Yeah, um, I, I've been kind of just kind of shooting from the hip and kind of bounce around a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, I think one of the things kind of, you know, one of the things I take away, you know, specifically, um, you know, when you think about archery and, and what it can give you, um, there's, it's kind of like playing a sport. It, there's so much more behind it. I mean, just the therapy of going out and shooting, mm-hmm. just, you know, basically putting arrows in foam for me is something that, um, you know, kind of helps me stress relieve, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and I could go out and shoot three or five arrows and shoot very well and I'll be done because that's kind of my thing. If I'm out, if I go out and I shoot three to five arrows very consistently, very, you know, tight groups, then I'm going to stop because I'm going to leave on a good note Mm -hmm. until I pick my bow up the next day and shoot again versus if I go out and I shoot 10 to 12 times uh, and, you know, my symmetry is off and I'm not shooting, you know, to to the precision that I would expect. Next time I pick up my bow, I'm going to remember that previous experience. So, I'm always trying to, you know, basically make every arrow perfect that I can, uh, go through my, you know, my shot sequence. And, you know, and if I do something wrong and I miss my target, you know, I play back in my mind, what did I do differently? Okay. Well, maybe I didn't set my bubble. Um, maybe while I was breathing in my exhale, um, maybe I, um, got to the bottom of my exhale when I released the arrow, you know, versus as I'm through the top quadrant of my, you know, my exhale. So, there's certain things that I always try to, um, you know, again, try to keep consistent, but, um, every time you have to be spot on every time with that. Um, even though, you know, you want to commit it to memory and make it automatic, but even sometimes then, you know, autopilot doesn't always function perfectly all the time either. Yeah. So you got to be able to manually do it every time and turn it on and turn it off, uh, when you need to. But, um, Interesting too the some of the history around um, you know not only the PE and some of the exciting stuff you've been working on you've kind of kept me plugged into that but you know you'll just interject on occasion just you know some of these older um, articles just about just ancient archery and how mm-hmm. you know like in the Romans time I mean this is yeah. a lot of you know BC stuff I where, was sending a bunch of Roman stuff lately because yeah. I was into that the whole era you know yeah it's just it's <laughs> crazy to think that something so old I mean they weren't playing football you know in the Roman time they weren't playing golf then right yeah yeah they yeah. were doing things that you know functionally that they had to do to survive well you know you look at the Spartans I mean they, they took the little boys about age seven and they went off to study with the you know, the military group basically. And, you know, um, <laughs> it was a pretty brutal existence. I mean, they, they kicked some butt, but you yeah. know, they paid a big price for it too. Um, yeah, it's just, it's also good to, you know, because when you go out and shoot like that, you become very focused. Um, you know, and I say that kind of figuratively, but also very physically because you're focused on a target uh, and it's very cleansing for the brain. You know, they've done some s- interesting research on multitasking and things like that. And and one of the things we've lost is to really focus on something. And, and somebody might say, well, I'm focused on my game phone, you know. But that's not physical enough. The, the best way to develop your brain is always going to involve movement. So you're going to go out and you're going to take your target shots and you're doing a physical movement that involves precision. So it's not just gross motor because it has precise movement with digital dexterity. It's better for your brain. 
and you're outside, that's going to make it better for your brain. So just the simple thing of going out and shooting three to five arrows, that's why you're feeling that reset. You're going outside. You're not, you know, texting on your phone or whatever. You're focused in one task. You're completely there 100%, and it's extremely uh, resetting mm-hmm. neurologically. You yeah. Know? Well, we're going to try to put some of that to test tomorrow. We're going to go and shoot tomorrow and... Have yeah. some fun tomorrow, and uh, yeah, we'll see if I can put it to practice, right? Yeah. <laughs> When's the last time you shot? Last time I was here. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I wish I could go out in the back, and I don't live in that kind of a place in Southern California. So, I do have kind of a long area in my backyard, and when I first got my bow, I couldn't stand it. So, I set up the target, and it really freaked the neighbor out. So I had yeah. to stop doing it. You know, there is elements to. <laughs> Or I guess comparing it to riding a bike. I mean, yeah. there is that comparison, but there isn't any trade-off for not shooting and practicing either, right. you know, and right. that, that's something that, um, you know, some people just have it. Some people don't have to shoot every day, and some people are, you know, like I say, just very proficient um, at the process, but others, you know, have to continually work at it to to ensure that, you know, when the time when that time nears or if it's in a competition, it could be competition archery, you know, or it could be hunting, um, that in that moment, you know, of truth that you're ready to go and yeah. you're ready to make that, I, that happen. I would shoot more if I had, if I had the type of yard set up, I, I would love to go shoot just for me, just the mental health part of it. I mean, literally that to me is so resetting, but, uh, I'll give you an example though. I don't shoot a lot, uh, whether it's my firearm or the bow, um, but I had an opportunity, as you know, to uh, spend a day with a bunch of SWAT officers uh, in Southern California in January to do a tactical shooting all day at a private uh, ranch. And so I was a little nervous about going because, you know, this is what they do. And, uh, you know, my contacts said, oh, you know, you'll be fine. You know, so I did go out to range. I put about 100 rounds down range and I was the only person there that day. So the range uh, master came over and he was giving me some really good tips and and so when I went out to the, to the the ranch that day, I used the things that we've talked about in the show, the relaxation and, you know, the body scan and all that. I ended up out shooting some of the, the law enforcement people. So they were like, wow, you did really well, Ron, because I don't shoot that much. So mm-hmm. I felt really good about it. And I, I was, uh, it was just a really good feeling to, to not be that active of a shooter, but to use the uh, mental skills training and also... I know how to control my body because of my physical education, fitness background, and, and putting all that into it, um, it really makes a difference. So um, maybe that will encourage some people that, you know, they like to hunt, but they're not so much into the fitness and the movement thing. Maybe they'll get into that, and all of a sudden they'll be bringing more game home and having more barbecues. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it's all about. <laughs> cool, man. Well, like I said... It's good to have you back on the podcast. It's absolutely good I to love have it. you out here and uh, spend some time in the outdoors. That's usually what you and I like to do, whether yeah. it's hiking or shooting or mm-hmm. you know any of the above. We usually always have a good time doing that. So, yeah, look forward to putting some downrange tomorrow with you, and we yeah. might uh, see if we can't maybe get into some pigs in the morning. We may try to do that, and yeah, and uh, at least you can kind of see because you've never really actually been out. I have archery I, hunting. No, I've, I've just done target stuff. Yeah. So this would be this would be different for me. And and uh, I hope your people enjoy the film. And you can hook up the link for the website on the podcast. And yeah, 
Um, it'll be released um, publicly this Tuesday, and it'll be in a lot of different formats. It'll be on Amazon and iTunes and all kinds of stuff. So Okay. And if someone was to want to get a hold of you directly, what would be the best way if someone had some questions for you or sure. wanted to see where your information was? Yeah, my email is ron at ronjones.org, and uh, you'll hook some links up, and they can they can text or call me at 661-993-7874. I'm out here in... Uh, Southern California and Valencia, so a little bit south of you, but yep. nice drive along the 101 through Santa Barbara, so I don't mind coming down or for coming sure. up, you know. Yeah. For sure. Well, cool, man. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Appreciate having you here, and uh, thanks, listeners, for listening and tuning in for another adventure on the RNA Outdoors podcast. Hey everyone, this is Lucas Paw, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to the podcast app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or use our website www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Facebook, RNA Outdoors, and Instagram, Rod and Arrow Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, and get involved with conservation efforts. And know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, go farther, stay longer.